I'm Tavis Smiley. This is KBLA Talk 1580. You're listening to the sounds of Sly, the family stone. June is Black Music Month, and every day during the month of June, we feature a particular artist. It's the artist of the day. We play their music all three hours. Here's a funny story about Sly Stone. A friend of mine, <laughs> I won't call your name. I know you're listening. A friend of mine texts me this. Uh, it says, Tavis, I'm listening to the program and to all the Sly uh, and the Family Stone music. My mom and dad were just talking about Sly Stone over the weekend. That he played a show at U of I, University of Illinois, when they were uh, in college. And he was notoriously late, Sly was. He got there two hours late and everybody booed. When Sly arrived, when he finally got on stage, he told the audience, you can keep booing or you can sit down and we'll play. And everybody sat down. <laughs> uh, and Sly, the family stone did their thing. Uh, and so uh, all three hours of our program today, the music of one Sly and the family stone. Uh, Miles, I want to play this clip of RFK uh, that we played earlier at the top of our show. Uh, for those who may not have been tuned in, and I want you to hear the voice of RFK um, literally 24 hours after the assassination of MLK. So let me set this up. Um, we're going to be joined in a moment here uh, for a conversation by Thurston Clark, who's on the line. We'll get to him in just a second, but let me just set this up. So uh, RFK, I know this well because most of you know I am uh, from Indiana, born in Mississippi. That's my home state. I was raised in Indiana in the Midwest. And RFK was in Indianapolis. He's running for president. He was in Indianapolis, Indiana, the capital of my state, um, when news came that Dr. King had been assassinated in Memphis. And I recall, like it was yesterday, the first time I saw that clip of him in Indy uh, announcing to this audience that Dr. King had been assassinated in Memphis. And just the howls and the visceral screams from that audience were RFK made the announcement as he was campaigning that MLK had been killed in Memphis. And then literally, almost two months later to the day, they gunned RFK down here in Los Angeles at the Ambassador Hotel. Here now, uh, the voice of RFK uh, talking about violence in America the day after the assassination of Dr. King. What has violence ever accomplished? What has it ever created? No martyr's cause has ever been stilled by an assassin's bullet. No wrongs have ever been righted by riots and civil disorders. A sniper is only a coward, not a hero. And an uncontrolled or uncontrollable mob is only the voice of madness, not the voice of the people. Among free men, said Abraham Lincoln, there can be no successful appeal from the ballot to the bullet. And those who take such appeal are sure to lose their case and pay the cost. Violence breeds violence. Repression breeds retaliation. And only a cleansing of our whole society can remove this sickness from our souls. It is eerie all these years later still to hear that clip of RFK uh, because um, 55 years ago today, June 5, 1968, again, just two months after the assassination of Dr. King in Memphis at the Lorraine Motel, uh, Robert F. Kennedy shot shortly after midnight at the Ambassador Hotel here in L.A. on Wilshire Boulevard after winning the California presidential primary. He was pronounced dead 
one day later on June 6, 1968. And so today we look back at that critical moment in American history and wonder what might have been had we not lost one of the most influential figures in all of American political history. I am pleased to be joined by Thurston Clark, who has written a award-winning work about RFK. Uh, Thurston Clark, good to have you on. How are you, sir? I'm just fine. Thank you for this opportunity. I'm delighted to have you on. Thank you for accepting the phone call and the invitation to come on this program for the hour. Let me start with this and we'll move from there. When you hear that clip, I I called it eerie all these years later to hear. uh, RFK had no idea what would happen to him. Uh, Literally two months later, he'd already lost his brother JFK, the president, John F. Kennedy. Um, When you hear that clip, uh, Thurston Clark, what what do you hear? What do you make of that? Well, I make it, first of all, are you talking about the Indianapolis clip or the one? No, the one I just played. played. The one I just played. The one you just played, I believe, is that's his speech to the City Club of Cleveland the next day. That's right. And he was talking to an audience of white business leaders. Um, And it shows what he did throughout his campaign, which is he brought uncomfortable truths to an audience that one might think would be unreceptive to this kind of uh, speech. Mm -hmm. And he did it again and again. You know, when he was driving into Cleveland uh, to make that speech, he was in a white convertible, and he was waved down by an aide who said that a police believed a sniper was hiding in a steeple overlooking the hotel where he was going to speak. And Kennedy looked at him and said, no, we never stop for that kind of a threat. And he kept going. Mm-hmm. And that's the way he was. You know, there's other episodes, too, in his campaign. I think one of, another one was uh, a few weeks earlier. He spoke to st- medical students at Ball State, and some of them were booing his uh, call for kind of a, a, a medical insurance for the whole country. Um, and one of them kind of said, well, where are you going to get that? Where are we going to get the money to afford all that? And he stopped and he took his fingers and he jabbed his finger and he jabbed it at the audience. And he said, we're going to get that money from you and from you and from you and from you. Mm. And in the end, there were a lot of them booed him, but a few stood up and applauded. But that's what he did again and again and again. Mm. He spoke the truth. Since you mentioned the Indianapolis clip, um, and we may find that uh, right quick here during this uh, yeah. uh, next break. I, w- I want the audience, if, if Miles and J.D. can find that clip right quick, it, it, it's easy to find, of RFK speaking in Indianapolis the night of the assassination yeah. of Dr. King. We'll play that when we come forward. Um, as a matter of fact, let me just do this. Um, let me um, uh, tell you when we come forward, we're going to play that clip. because I, I want you to hear the guttural sounds of this audience yeah. um, that uh, in Indianapolis when RFK makes the announcement about the assassination of MLK, and then we'll get Thurston Clark to comment on that. And then we'll yep. move forward through the rest of this hour. We're talking about what might have been had they not shot down RFK and MLK uh, in the same year, uh, 1968. More with Thurston Clark when we come forward on KBLA Talk. Uh, Thurston Clark, with your permission, uh, we have found this clip, and I want to play it in its entirety. It's just a few minutes long, um, but I think that by not cutting it off, um, the audience will feel what it is that you have felt and I have felt uh, any number of times when we have listened and watched this clip. Um, because it was filmed as well. So uh, before I get Thurston Clark to comment on it, uh, in case you've just tuned in, this is the clip, sound of RFK uh, in Indianapolis, Indiana, my home state, my home city, uh, the night that word arrived uh, to him that Dr. King had just been assassinated in Memphis. I have some very sad news for all of you, and that is that... Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. 
Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. In this difficult day, in this difficult time for the United States, it's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. For those of you who are black, considering the evidence evidently is that there were white people who were responsible, you can be filled with bitterness and with hatred and a desire for revenge. We can move in that direction as a country and greater polarization, black people amongst blacks and white amongst whites filled with hatred toward one another. Or we can make an effort, as Martin Luther King did, to understand and to comprehend and replace that violence, that stain of bloodshed that is spread across our land with an effort to understand compassion and love. For those of you who are black and are tempted to fill with, be filled with hatred and mistrust of the injustice of such an act against all white people, I would only say that I can also feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling I had a member of my family killed, but he was killed by a white man. But we have to make an effort in the United States. We have to make an effort to understand, to get beyond or go beyond these rather difficult times. My favorite poem, my, my favorite poet was Aeschylus. And he once wrote, Even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own day despair, against our will, comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another. Feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or whether they be black. We can do well in this country. We will have difficult times. We've had difficult times in the past, but we will, and we will have difficult times in the future. It is not the end of violence. It is not the end of lawlessness, and it's not the end of disorder. But the vast majority of white people and the vast majority of black people in this country want to live together, want to improve the quality of our life, and want justice for all human beings that abide in our land. With...
and what dedicate ourselves to what the Greeks wrote so many years ago, to tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world. Let us dedicate ourselves to that and say a prayer for our country and for our people. Thank you very much. Every time I hear that, Thurston Clark, it's been a while since I've heard it in its entirety. Um, I am riveted, um, riveted every time I hear it. Your thoughts? And Well, remember, it was extemporaneous. Exactly. He had no chance to prepare. Off the he cuff. He scribbled a few notes down on a piece of paper, and he, that magnificent speech was really a window onto his soul as well. I mean, the fact that he mentioned uh, his brother, he said, I lost a member of my family. He had never before in public talked about John F. Kennedy's assassination. And that's the first time. And that's the time he chose to finally do it. Um, when he began, um, I write about a witness who was there when he first announced that King had been killed. And he, the witness said it was like the instant before a lightning bolt strikes or after an artillery shell bursts, when the air seems to be sucked out of a place the crowd gave up a huge moan and ooh so loud that a woman driving two blocks away wondered what Kennedy could have said to produce such a reaction. Mm. There were shouts of, oh, Jesus, and no, and so on. People fell to their knees, praying and weeping. What a moment it was. Um, and what a speech it was. It is a kind of, in some ways, it builds on what Lincoln said in his inaugural address, he said that um, he hoped that the nation would uh, yet swell the chorus of the Union, that again touched, as surely will be, by the an better angels of our nature. Mm. Well, in Indianapolis, Kennedy tried to summon forth Lincoln's better angels by insisting that the vast majority of white people and the vast majority of black people in this country want to live together and want justice for all human beings mm. that abide in this land. Oh, my goodness. And when you consider, um, we'll talk about what might have been as we move through this hour, but when you consider the brilliance, um, the eloquence, um, mm -hmm. the, the, the opening of his heart and the, the, the rendering of his soul, as it were, uh, mm -hmm. that night in Indianapolis with those words from RFK, when you consider then that two months later, almost to the day, King is killed April 4, 1968, yeah. RFK is killed June 5, 1968, so almost two months to the day. He suffers the same fate here in Los Angeles at the Ambassador Hotel, not too, too far from this studio right now. Um, what, what do you make of that, Thurston Clark? Well, I, I, I think that the, the link between those two events, uh, two events was it's, it's almost foretold by what Kennedy is talking about. But Kennedy became such a danger um, to some entrenched interests in this country and the people who had an agenda, he was he was a d d going to disrupt things, uh, just in the same way that King was disrupted the the way things had been, and people who do that become targets, um, and I think that's uh, you know that's what happened. That's why those two events happened so close together. It wasn't just because it was 1968; it's because of the kind of men. They were Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy. Yeah. There are, um, now let's get into uh, uh, more about RFK specifically. Um, yeah. Let me start with this. Since we've made this RFK, MLK connection, let me start with this and get your take on it. We'll move from there. 
there, there, are, there are two lenses, if you will, or two different uh, lenses uh, that, that I could look uh, through um, when it comes to RFK. Uh, the one lens is the lens we're looking through right now. Uh, the brilliance of RFK that night speaking about Dr. King in Indianapolis and opening up his heart, pouring himself out to that audience extemporaneously in Indianapolis. Um, if you hear RFK in that clip, then you hear a profound regard uh, a deep respect uh, and admiration uh, for MLK, Dr. King. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see where I'm going with this. <laughs> but yeah. you read, you, you look at RFK through another lens, RFK and yeah. JFK, his brother, and they had, they, 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 they had, you know, King was being surveilled. And right. I don't need to tell you, you know the story, you've written the book. Uh, there, yeah. There's another way to see the relationship between the Kennedys and King. Um, so what, which lens should I look through, uh, Thurston Clark? Well, I think you're looking through the right lens for the time when you're looking, when Bobby Kennedy was the Attorney General and JFK was President. Um, I think that by 1968, Robert Kennedy uh, had changed on a number of issues. This was one of them. He'd become much more sensitive to civil rights, um, to what had what you know what was being suffered by uh, Black Americans, Native Americans. Um, that he had a, a sympathy then that he didn't have. He couldn't have given that kind of speech two or three years earlier. And, by the way, the same thing is true of his attitude towards the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. So this was a man who'd made, you know, in the last year or two, before he ran for president, who'd undergone some profound changes. Uh, and some of them were occasioned uh, by his brother's assassination. You know, one of the ways he dealt with his pain after um, President Kennedy's assassination was he read a lot of Greek philosophy, and he looked for hope from the Greeks. And you can see that coming back when he uses Aeschylus and other quotations from the Greeks to try to make sense of what's happened to Martin Luther King, just as he used the same to try to make sense of what had happened to his brother. Yeah. How much did his going to the Mississippi Delta and seeing poverty uh, in the black community in ways yeah. that he could never have imagined, how did that change? I mean, before you answer that, let me just say uh, this audience uh, knows that I've interviewed many, many times in my career mm-hmm. and on this program, uh, Marion Wright Edelman and her husband, Peter Edelman. Yeah. Uh, and you know this well, Marion Wright Edelman, of course, the founder, the iconic yeah. founder of the Children's Defense Fund. Uh, Marion Wright Edelman was working with Dr. King. Um, her uh, then uh, her, her soon-to-be husband, uh, uh, Peter Edelman, was working for Robert Kennedy. That's how they met. Uh, so Marion Wright Edelman yeah. met her husband, Peter Edelman. When she was Marion Wright, of course, at the time. Marion Wright met Peter Edelman when she was working for MLK. He was working for RFK. They connected, and they went on to be married and had a, uh, have, have just served this country both so well. Uh, one of their sons is an Academy Award winner. He he won the Academy Award for the documentary about O.J. So uh, mm-hmm. they, they have just a, a wonderful family. But that's how Marion and Peter got together. I've known both of them for years. Interviewed both of them. They're friends of mine. So I, I always think of them when I think of the connection between RFK and MLK. And, of course, she's yeah. black and Peter is white. So there's a whole nother, another storyline there I don't have time to get into. But my question is, how did his going to the Delta and seeing poverty, again, in a way he could never have imagined, change Bobby Kennedy? Well, it was one of one of several things that changed, had a profound effect on him. 
Uh, also visiting uh, Harlem tenements and seeing children who had been bitten by rats was another thing that shook him. But the, but the Mississippi Delta thing was absolutely seminal. I think it was Peter Edelman who was with him on that tour. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah, and I interviewed Peter, and he said, you, you can't imagine, you know, how shaken and how upset Kennedy was after going into some of those houses and seeing the conditions in which people were living. Now, let me say another thing that... Kennedy had an extremely, uh, was extremely good at imagining himself in other people's situations. So when he saw these children with their bloated bellies in these uh, shacks, these sharecrocker shacks, he imagined his own children. He thought, how would I feel if this was my child? He imagined himself and his family in that situation. And he did the same thing when he went to the Pine Ridge um, Native American reservation, and walked around with a with a with an orphan boy, and uh, imagine what it would be like to live in those terrible conditions too. He had this ability to put himself in other people's shoes, and not just kind of imagine, but to really feel what it would be like to be those people. Mm. And that's why the Mississippi trip was absolutely crucial, probably. Yeah the one, the most important that he took before he ran for president. I hear um, the distinction that you are making uh, between sympathy and empathy. They're not the same yes. thing, as you well know. Um, right. Earlier in his career, he would have been described as being sympathetic. Yep. Later in his career, he became empathetic. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not always easy to do for someone who comes from uh, the privilege uh, and has the means that RFK had, and yet he found yeah. his way to empathy anyway, Thurston Clark. Yes, he did. Um, some people might think that it was also because he was kind of considered the runt in the family, the person who was not much was expected of him, really. Right. Um, I think his father favored the oldest brother, Joe, and when Joe was um, killed in the war, it, it all fell onto Jack Kennedy, onto uh, President Kennedy. And he was always kind of pushed aside, felt pushed aside, and the lesser of the three brothers. So I think that gave him a, you know, a certain sense of being more empathetic, uh, with people who, you know, who weren't uh, at the top of their game, who weren't number one, who were suffering something. And, of course, after he lost his brother, the assassination, he became much more empathetic with other people's suffering because he'd suffered. Yeah. A great deal more to talk about when we come forward uh, in this hour with Thurston Clark after news, traffic, and sports. Um, we are talking about the assassination 55 years ago, uh, today, um, he was shot here in L.A., uh, uh, pronounced dead a day later on January the 6th at the Ambassador Hotel uh, on uh, Wilshire Boulevard, for those who know the city of Los Angeles. Uh, We'll talk a great deal more about uh, what might have been had they not gunned down RFK two months after they gunned down MLK. You're listening to Thurston Clark right now on KBLA Talk 1580. Tavis Smiley, that's Sly, and the Family Stone. June is uh, Black Music Month, and every day during the month of June, we have a featured artist of the day. In case you've just tuned in, the featured artist of today is Sly and the Family Stone, and um, I'll be playing this music for the rest of our show today. (sighs) In this hour, though, we are um, trying to wrap our brains around what happened in this city 55 years ago. 
uh, this city where this radio station is flagshipped, heard across the nation, but flagshipped here in Los Angeles. 55 years ago today, June 5, 1968, just two months after the assassination of Dr. King, uh, in Memphis at the Lorraine Motel, Robert F. Kennedy was shot shortly after midnight at the Ambassador Hotel here in Los Angeles after winning the California presidential primary. He was pronounced dead one day later on June 6, 1968. And we are talking in this hour with award-winning writer about RFK, Thurston Clark, who I'm honored and humbled to have on this program. Um, uh, Thurston Clark, uh, I think you'll appreciate this. Um, when I first moved, I've been in LA for, you know, 30 plus years now. It is home. I've lived here longer than any place I've ever lived. LA is home and I, and I love, love it, love my city and, uh, love, uh, being a, an active part of trying to make it better every day. Um, but I recall when I first moved here, uh, to work for the late, great Tom Bradley, uh, the very first time I saw the ambassador at the hotel, I was actually in the back seat with the mayor the mayor's in the front seat of course i'm in the back seat we are headed to an event uh and i looked up and saw this hotel of the ambassador and it was amazing for me to see it for the first time in the car with the mayor because i was able to get his take sort of on on what happened um uh, and where he was and all that goes along with that um but i would ride by that hotel many many times every time i drove past it on wilshire boulevard uh, my mind would always of course go to rfk that hotel has since been torn down uh there's a school now on that site i believe um but um uh, i i suspect there are many americans um who remember where they were uh when rfk was was assassinated um, as you look back on it, um, his, his brother JFK is assassinated, MLK is assassinated, RFK is assassinated. Specifically with regard to his, his assassination, uh, how would you suggest to us that um, was received around the nation? How did, how did America handle that particular assassination coming after JFK, coming after MLK? How did the nation wrap its brain, as it were, then around the assassination of, of Bobby Kennedy? Um, I think it was, if, if possible, uh, an even more devastating event because it was the third. It was had come two months after uh, Martin Luther King. It had come a few years after JFK's, and I think it was a. I think that's why it was uh, so devastating to people, and because so many um, Americans, black and white, had placed such hope in Bobby Kennedy. Um, I begin my book, The Last Campaign, by recounting the funeral t- train that took Bobby Kennedy's body from New York, where they had the funeral, to uh, Washington, where he was buried at Arlington National Cemetery. And two million people showed up spontaneously and lined the tracks to say goodbye to him. People were weeping. They were waving signs. There were, it was an incredibly spontaneous emotional um, event. They were, uh, they were singing hymns. They, a lot of them sang the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Um, I remember one person who was on that train saw a group of bridesmaids who'd left the wedding and had come with their bouquets of flowers. And as the train passed, they threw the flowers on the train. And she asked, afterwards, she asked somebody in the print, what did he have that he could do that to people? What did he have? Now, I should say that at the time, of course, we were all focused on Bobby Kennedy, the one man who'd been cut down, just as we were focused on Martin Luther King. But I think when you step back a bit and talk about what his death really meant, we realize 
that in his case, it wasn't just one man that was being shot. It was tens of thousands of deaths that followed, because there's no doubt in my mind, and as a, in many of political observers, that he would have won the presidency. Mm-hmm. Ten, twenty, during the Nixon presidency, 21,000 American soldiers were killed in Vietnam, and hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese lost their lives. If Bobby Kennedy become president, given what he had said and what he planned to do about Vietnam, there's no way that 20,000 more American servicemen and hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese would have died. So that those bullets killed a lot more than one man. Mm. Powerful point. I want to talk a little bit, uh, uh, I want to talk in greater detail as we move through this hour, uh, about what might have been beyond mm-hmm. that. And that and that's, a powerful, that's a powerful frame you've already given us to wrestle with. Um, but I want to talk about what might have been had he uh, not been assassinated. Your book, though, and I'm glad you referenced it. I want to go there anyway. Uh, the book is called The Last Campaign, Robert F. Kennedy and 82 Days That Inspired America. The book came out some years ago, but once again, it's called uh, The Last Campaign, Robert F. Kennedy and 82 Days That Inspired America. Uh, talk to me about those 82 days that inspired America that you reference. Well, the the inspiration was not confined to people who originally had supported Bobby Kennedy. Uh, he won uh, over votes in in blue-collar states, like Indi- uh, the Indiana primary. He surprised, and he got big crowds in Kansas and in Nebraska. I mean, he had an, uh, an appeal that went across class lines and across racial lines, uh, one that, it, that has been very hard. We haven't really replicated it since, I think. Uh, except pro- probably Barack Obama did something in his first election, um, had some of the same uh, success. But certainly Bobby Kennedy was the first one uh, to successfully do this. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes his death so so appalling, because you wonder not just what might have happened in Vietnam, but what might have happened um, in relations between the classes and the races here in the United States. Mm. I want to interrogate that uh, classes and races notion that you raised yeah. in just a second here. Um, let me just ask you this first. Um, you, you referenced earlier those bridesmaids who came and threw their flowers on the train yeah. when his body went by. Um, let me ask you to, to answer the rhetorical question that you posed. <laughs> Which is what was that thing that Bobby Kennedy had? We know we know the Camelot thing, yeah. um, but 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 what what was that thing that that Bobby Kennedy had that was resonating so well? In fact, that had he not been uh, killed, uh, most believe that he would have been elected president. Because I think uh, people believed that he was speaking, as I t- said about Lincoln, to our better angels. That he was trying to bring out the best in people. That he inspired people. He didn't speak to their hatreds and to their selfishness. He, spent, he spoke to their willing people's willingness to sacrifice, to be noble. And we all have a, an impulse to, to, to live a noble life, to lead a good People do. Mm-hmm. And there's often, uh, they're not people, they're not politicians who ask us to do that, or at least ask us to do it in a credible way, and ask us to sacrifice things to do it, such as when I talked about him talking to the medical students at, at Ball State, saying, yes, you're going to pay these taxes because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Well, um, to your point about classes and races, um, yeah. I don't tell you anything that you don't already know, which is that um, even since the death of the assassination of Bobby Kennedy, 
the gap between the rich and the rest of us has grown oh. in this country. Yeah. Uh, there's a huge divide uh, between the rich and the poor in this country. He was talking about the issue of poverty mm-hmm. on the campaign trail. Um, just imagine for a moment, if you will, what he might have been able to say and do perhaps about this 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 class warfare, if you will, some don't like that term, um, but this 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 gap, this gulf between the rich, again, as I said earlier, and the rest of us, uh, what might he have accomplished in that regard? You think? Well, I think that there would have been. Uh, I think that the um, war on the Johnson's war on poverty. Uh, I think that uh, Kennedy would have finished it and done it. Would have had the money that had been spent on Vietnam. Um, to finance it properly. I, I think that there wouldn't have been, with the Vietnam War over, that Kennedy would have had the funds and the will and the support of the nation to complete and win the war, the so-called, you know, Johnson's War on Poverty, which was hobbled by the Vietnam War. I mean, there was the will there in the 60s to do something about poverty, to do something about inequality, but it was crippled and and finally hobbled by the Vietnam War. Uh, And I think that once Kennedy had gotten us out of Vietnam, um, that he would have had the latitude um, to continue and improve on the great uh, Johnson's Great Society projects. He would have been able to make them his own. I've often wondered about uh, the following, uh, which I'll share with you in just 30 seconds here. uh, When I tell you that when we come forward, we'll get Thurston Clark's response to this in just a moment. But I've often thought about, speaking of what might have been, had Dr. King not been assassinated, uh, Bobby Kennedy, of course, still would have run for president. And uh, I wonder, and I've written a book about Dr. King called Death of a King, as this audience knows, um, a book about the last year of King's life. And I've often wondered, again, we'll unpack this in just a moment here. I've often wondered, had Dr. King lived and Bobby Kennedy lived and Kennedy had run for president, given all that was under the bridge in that relationship, whether or not King who got to a point, I won't say he despised LBJ, but certainly King went in on LBJ about the war in Vietnam. He was no fan of LBJ by the time he got to the Vietnam War. They'd worked together on voting rights and civil rights, but King is no fan of LBJ vis-a-vis the Vietnam War. Bobby Kennedy had a different take on the Vietnam War. When we come forward, what might have happened between RFK and MLK had they both survived and RFK is running for president? We'll get Thurston Clark's response to that when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Thurston Clark, to uh, uh, that imagining that I was doing before that break, um, King survives. Uh, Bobby uh, Kennedy survives. King is still doing what he's doing, which, as you know, at the time of his assassination, he's organizing the Poor People's Campaign. uh, Where they're going to take over the National Mall in Washington. He's going to camp out on that National Mall. Uh uh, with, With tons of other people until our government did something about the war on poverty, which Johnson had been distracted from by the war in Vietnam. So right. King King is planning to go to Washington. Let me just play this out. King is planning to go to Washington uh, and take over the National Mall with this massive poor people's campaign. That would have happened while Bobby was running for president. And given all that was under the bridge in their relationship, what do you think happens <laughs> in that moment? Oh, I think, um, I think Bobby Kennedy's... Uh speaks, goes to the mall, and speaks to the poor people's campaign. Right. I think it would have been impossible for him to shun uh, King and to to distance himself. I, 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 don't think, I don't think he would have camped out there, but I think he would have come and addressed the crowd at some point. 
mm-hmm. um, and it would have been it could have been you know the, the kind of speech in a way that he gave um, in Indianapolis after King was shot. He would make some of the same statements about um, you know both. Uh, white and black Americans of goodwill wanting to come together and solve our problems. And I, I think he would have seen it as an opportunity. And I also think that had he become president, that I think that he and King would have both been allied um, together in trying to end the war as quickly as possible. Yep. I think you're right about the latter. They would have uh, aligned in trying to end that war, no question about it. Um, King, of course, catches hell the last year of his life for coming out so yeah. viscerally against the war in his Beyond Vietnam speech, uh, which is where... And that, you know, you know, that's the fact that they were both, that they would both be united and working together to end the Vietnam War thing. I mean, that could have uh, created uh, a sympathy and alliance between them that could have led to other things during the Bobby Kennedy administration. Yeah, and those other things, I think, would have included the issue of poverty, uh, income inequality, yeah. and economic immobility. And I think about that more than anything that had they both survived, given where they were in their work and their witness, Bobby running for president but talking about poverty, King planning a poor people's campaign to take over the National Mall in Washington, one can only imagine had RFK and MLK gotten together on the issue of poverty that we might not be where we are today, still wrestling with uh, this notion of how to, to better serve the least among us and to shrink this gap, this gulf between, as I said earlier, the rich and the rest of us. Uh, one can only imagine, one can only dream. Uh, our remaining moments with Thurston Clark talking about um, uh, the assassination of Bobby Kennedy 55 years ago uh, here in Los Angeles when we come forward. Let's unpack a little bit more with Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues right now. Right now. Right now. Right now. Thurston Clark, as you well know, uh, let me say i got about four minutes left in this conversation. Four minutes left. I want to cover a couple more things right quick, but this is the main thing I want to get to. Uh, as you know, um, the last time that Sirhan, uh, Sirhan, uh, the, the man who killed Bobby Kennedy um, yeah. at the Ambassador Hotel here in L.A., when he came up for parole, uh, this is back in 2021, uh, Ethel Kennedy uh, and her kids were bitterly split uh, on uh, his uh, parole. Um, your thoughts on all these years later, how his own family could be split on whether or not uh, his uh, assassin um, should have been paroled. Well, I know that um, uh, Kerry Kennedy, who I've been in touch with, his daughter, was very much against uh, the parole, as was her mother. I think the only one, the, the, the Kennedy that I remember is Bobby Kennedy Jr. as uh, being for the parole. Um, I'm not aware that there were lots of other uh, his children descendants were for Sirhan being paroled. Uh, I, was against, I was against it simply because of the, as I talked earlier, the damage that uh, Sirhan did, not just to the Kennedy family, but to our country. Right. Um, and uh, I, I think that, that the life sentence was, was justified. Yeah, there were two sons that were opposed, uh, that were for the parole. Um, oh, there was another yeah, one. Yeah, one more, yeah, so you're right. Uh, uh, Robert Jr. Uh, yeah. and, and Douglas, uh, both oh, of them. Okay. Both of them okay. were in favor of uh, of, yeah. of of that parole. Uh, what's fascinating about that, since you since you mentioned uh, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr., um, uh, <laughs> uh, what do you make? What, what do you, uh, you you're, you're laughing? You're laughing already. I ain't even asked the question because you know you know where I'm going, don't you? Uh, yeah, I do. I what 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 do you make of the fact that Robert Kennedy Jr. has announced that he's running for president? He's going to primary uh, on the Democratic ticket, uh, Joe Biden. 
I, you know, I don't know what to make of it. I yeah. mean, uh, here's a man who had really a distinguished uh, career of accomplishment in environmental issues mm-hmm. uh, recently. Um, and I, I just don't know. I mean, I, I would have to be, a, you know, a, a, unless you want to talk to a psychiatrist or a psychologist or something on what's happened, I simply have, I simply have no idea. I've met yeah. Bobby Kennedy. He was at a Kennedy family event in, in, in Hyannis. He was extremely gracious and pleasant to me, but yeah. we didn't talk, you know, about vaccines. Luckily. Yeah, yeah. No, um, yeah, yeah. You, you no, stay. I don't know what to make. Yeah, best to stay away from that subject with him. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I've had, I've, I've interviewed him a number of times in my career. Lovely guy. We've always gotten along, yeah. and I don't know what to make of it either. Um, but. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned earlier uh, in this program uh, today that Cornell West, uh, uh, my my friend and brother over 30-plus years, announced today yeah. that he's running for president on the People's Party ticket. So there are a lot of people who think that President Biden has not been as progressive uh, as he could be. And so uh, that may be one of the reasons that animates uh, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. It certainly, I know, is going to animate uh, the campaign of Cornell West for president on right. the People's Party ticket. So we shall see what happens. Um, that's another conversation for tomorrow, perhaps. Let me yeah. close with this in the minute that I have left. Um, uh, 55 years after his assassination, uh, what say you, Thurston Clark, about the uh, the legacy of Bobby Kennedy, RFK? Well, I think the legacy has been carried on through his the foundation, um, which has been honoring um, you know, brave people who stood up around the world who've been willing to do what was called uh, speak um, truth to power. Mm-hmm. And that's something that Kennedy did again and again. And I think often when people use that expression, speak truth to power, I think uh, either consciously or unconsciously they're referencing Bobby Kennedy because that's what he did again and again throughout his campaign. I think that is one of his legacies is uh, making that quality something that uh, progressives and not just progressives but other people should aspire to long live the legacy of uh, robert uh, f kennedy our guest in this hour has been thurston clark who has written uh, uh, 13 widely acclaimed works of fiction and nonfiction. the book that i am uh, uh, most proud of uh, regarding his uh, contribution uh, to letters is the last campaign robert f kennedy in 82 days that inspired america if you can find it, get a copy of it. It came out some years ago, but it's a beautiful and brilliant read. Thurston Clark, good to have you on the program, sir. All the best to you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. I've enjoyed this. Thank you, sir. Hour 3 of Tavis Smiley after news, traffic, and sports on KBLA Talk 1580.